Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Morning. My name is Steve. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. Some of you are new, and, and uh, I don't know you, but we're, I used to work here. And uh, I'm actually in town because, uh, do you like the snow? We brought that. And um, we live in Colorado now. We, we're here because uh, Darlene and I are leading another Israel trip in a couple months, and some of you are going. So we decided we ought to come down and have a meeting, so you know what you're doing. And... Um, it was great. We saw a couple weeks ago. Saw Andy and um, Andy and Jamie. Who's what? How many weeks now? She's on Facebook. Thirty weeks, something like that. And um, so Andy and Jamie and Sarah and Charlie and Eleanor. It was great. And uh, if you come to Colorado and we're not there, our garage code. You ready? Is um, seven nine five four three eight seven four two one. <laughs> Just any time you want to come. So I uh, appreciate Charlie asked me to, to do this. We're in this series called Growing People Change. And uh, it's one of your values here at Crossroads. And um, if you just look on the website, it's, it spells out the word grace. And the first letter is G, and that's growing people change. This church believes that as we progress in our faith, uh, we're going to grow. And as we're going to grow, we're going to change. And... Um, so that's what I'm going to talk about today. Nick talked about like the need for change, and Charlie talked about the power of change, and I'm going to talk about ongoing change, because I'm old. And Charlie said, well, you're old, and, and you know, what's it like to be old, and how long are you going to live, and what's the Christian life you know, like when you go on for decade after decade after decade? And so that's my assignment today. Have you ever been to a high school reunion? Anybody ever been to any of yours? Is it not such a big deal anymore? It's pretty much fun to go to the, t- the, the 10th or the 20th. Next year, I've got my 100th high school reunion. No, it's actually my, it'll be my 50th. I might go. It's in Indiana. But, but I, uh, I, I, one of my jobs that I have now, very part-time, is I'm a marketplace chaplain. And what that means is a business will invite uh, chaplains to come in once a week and just talk to their people and be there. And if they need prayer or something goes wrong or they go to the hospital, whatever. So I'm, I started doing that this fall. I'm a marketplace chaplain. And um, I signed up for it on Indeed. And I didn't know what would happen. I get this phone call a couple days later. And... Um, and this guy, Jeff, calls on the other end of the line, he goes, hey, is this the same Steve Hickson who went to Carmel High School and graduated in 1971? I go, yes. He goes, well, I'm Jeff Reinhardt, and he was in my class. I hadn't seen him since then. Is that bizarre? And he changed a lot. He was not the kind of person that would be a marketplace chaplain. Let's just put it that way. Uh, so it's fun to see things change. Anyway, they assigned me, the first place they assigned me to go was a dermatology clinic. I go, hmm, what's that going to be like? I don't know. A bunch of doctors. And so they said, we should meet these people. So we went over to their house, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Chung, Vin and Liesl Chung, wonderful, fantastic couple. I didn't know what it'd be like. I just thought, I'm going to meet these people. They're just probably normal doctors, whatever that's like, and um, I'll be working with them. 
I, at the end of the, the dinner, I was stunned. I, I really had no idea what these people had been through. And they actually, he wrote a book about his life. It's called Where the Wind Leads. Because um, then Chung was Chinese. He's, he's a Chinese Vietnamese um, man who, when he was three years old, his family were boat people. And then he ended up, by the way, he ended up meeting Liesl. She had the same exact name he did. That's how they met. It's a long story. But then she didn't have to change her name to get married. She's Korean. And anyway, when he, his family was growing up, right after the Vietnam War ended, there was this phenomenon called the boat people because people were trying to leave um, Vietnam, and they couldn't. And they'd get in these boats, and they'd go over the seas, and they'd try to uh, have other countries take them in as refugees. And, and most of them started filling up. Like, so they took their boat to Malaysia, and Malaysia said, we're full, but we'll take you to this island uh, a couple days away, and uh, you can be in a refugee camp there. So his, he's three years old. His family, they have 10 kids. And they put them on these four boats, and each boat was built to hold 30 people. So, of course, they put 95 people on each boat. And, and the motors don't work, but they towed them with these, these ropes. They tied them to a big ship, towed them out into the middle of the South China Sea. And uh, they said, by the way, there's no, we're not taking you to an island. They just took a, ro- a, a knife and just cut the ropes. Good luck. And most of these people died. There's no way to navigate. And so they're there for one day. They have no water. They have no food because they're supposed to just go to this other island. And so one day goes by, two days, three days. There's no water. There's no four days, five days, six days. They're all, you know, they've grown up Buddhist and were no religion. And finally, after six days, their fa- his father, who had never prayed openly in his life, knelt down in the middle of this boat and, uh, and of course the other boats have, have drifted off and they've got family members in them and he kneels down in the middle of his boat and for the first time in his life says creator God I think you know that we're here we need water we need rain and out of a clear blue sky it just began to pour it began to pour almost too much. It's a deluge. And they're trying to find everything they can to capture the water, and they're drinking the water. And then, and then he's like, kneels down after a while and goes, thank you. We needed to stop. It's too much. Guess what? It stopped. The next day, World Vision, the World Vision ship saw them out of the middle of nowhere. One guy was higher than the other people looking, and he was able to see farther and he saw their boat and they were saved and they came onto this new ship and as they came on they said there is a creator God well after they kind of gotten settled in they had a little meeting they said there is a creator God the reason we're here is because his name is Jesus and Vin Chung's father said that's who I'm going to give my life to he answered my prayer that causes dramatic change the reason I tell you this is it causes dramatic maybe some of you have had things happen in your life, his mother, his mother had ten, had ten children, and she had a dream one night around this time. And she has this dream, and all of her children are standing around her in this room, and one by one, all of her children in this dream fall down, and they're dead. And she's freaked out and traumatized, and she's stunned, and out of Nowhere, this man comes into the picture, and he's got a white robe and a beard. 
and uh, he slowly points at each child, and as he points to them, they come back to life. And she always remembered that dream. Somehow they came to America, they came to Arkansas, they walked into a little church, and on the wall, the first thing she saw was a picture of Jesus, and she said, that's the man in my dream. Now that... Those kinds of things are stunning, and they cause immediate, drastic change, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, um, I've seen many striking answers to prayer, and more than one that I thought miraculous, but they usually come at the beginning before conversion or soon after it. As the Christian life proceeds, they tend to be rarer. That's just an observation he made. Obviously, God can do it anything at any time. But... Often we have dramatic changes in our life when we come to Christ for the first time. But we know that the process of spiritual growth takes time. Lots of valuable, good things take time, right? The, the, the Great Wall of China, they think it took about 2,000 years to complete the whole thing. That's a long time. Uh, this is Teen Chapel. Michelangelo is on his, laying on his back. He's painting for four years to finish that. A baby takes, how long, Jamie? About, what, 40, a long time. And um, Pavarotti, we watched this documentary about Luciano Pavarotti the other day, and it was great. And uh, he had a career of about 45 years. And his voice wasn't as powerful and spectacular at the end, and some people were like, hey, he's losing it. Bono um, from U2 made a comment. He said... uh, it bothered him that people would say that because he said Pavarotti lived those songs for 45 years. So by the end, he, he might have been a little less powerful, but he had lived those and he enriched those songs with all this texture and meaning that he'd lived through. I'm going to tell you about somebody else in just a moment that had a 45-year uh, growing up period. But before that, I want to mention sanctification. So the idea is, sometimes we have very dramatic change at the beginning of our Christian lives. And the process of growing after that is called sanctification. Now, we are not partners in our justification. When we come to Jesus for the very first time, we are not partners in our salvation. God does it all, and we just say yes. He accomplished it. Jesus paid for our sin. He lived the perfect life. And so in our justification, we are not partners. We simply say yes to God. But then after that, our sanctification, which is literally the process of us becoming holy, um, and, and it takes a lifetime, we are partners with that. So in uh, 2 Corinthians, for instance, it says this, we who with unveiled faces all reflect, or the word can mean observe, the Lord's glory, are being transformed, that's the key word, into the like, his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who's the Spirit. So the idea is, for the rest of our lives, after we become Christians, we are being transformed. But we are partners in this. We're not passive. And so it says in Philippians chapter 2, next slide, uh, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, which means put so you have, we have to put some effort into it because we are partners, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So we are partners in our spiritual growth, which means we put some effort in, but God's Holy Spirit is the one who's going to actually produce all the growth, right? 
And so um, people have different theories on how sanctification works. Here's a, here's a few uh, graphs. I uh, remember when I first became a Christian, I thought it would be like this. I became a Christian, I thought, I'm just going to grow like a weed uh, forever. And then I realized that's not, if you know life, you realize that's not exactly how it works. So the next one, people came up with this theory, number two. This is more the, you know, the dramatic change theory where you go along, but then you need something extra. Like some people would say, well, you have to speak in tongues or you um, have to have a second blessing or you rededicate your life and you come to all these spots. And I, I don't really buy this one, but it's, it's kind of the idea you need a jump start every few years. I don't think that's exactly how it works. This next one I kind of like better. It's more like the three steps forward, one step back, which you might go, well, that's kind of been my life. Uh, there's a gradual transformation that happens, but we have our ups and downs. And then a friend of mine said, well, but it actually kind of feels like this. This is theory number four. And you might go, that's kind of mine right there. Um, so whichever one you pick, um, and I, I thought, well, this is a big topic. So I boiled it down to one simple idea. And if you buy this, and I hope it's biblical, um, I think this. I think that the key, or you could say a key, to ongoing spiritual growth, put yourself in a place where you have to ask God for help. Put yourself in a place where you have to ask God for help. I think that's a key to grow ongoing growth. Because if you think about it, it's exactly what we don't want to do. I don't want to put myself in a place. Now, often we find ourselves in a place where we have to ask God for help, but I don't want to like consciously put myself in a place. So let me tell you a story about a man. This is where the Bible comes in. You're going, is Steve going to talk about the Bible or no? Yes, I am. And I'm going to tell you about a biblical character. He's found in Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. And if you want, you can just turn to Joshua 13. We're going to get there. His name is Caleb. First time I really heard about Caleb was I got to meet Francis Schaeffer. And some of you are going, who is that? And some of you are going, oh, yeah, I've heard of him. He's an, ev he was an evangelical philosopher, Bible teacher. He had this ministry in Switzerland called Labrie. It's still going on. Somebody just mentioned it the other day. And uh, he was like kind of the guru up in the mountains. Uh, and I got to visit when I was in college. I went to Switzerland and I found Dr. Schaefer. And he had just finished writing a book called Joshua, a commentary on the book of Joshua. And so I bought it then and I lost it the other day. But anyway, uh, he was about my, how old I am now when I met him. And I was like 21. And I got to meet him, and I read about Joshua, and, I, and he kind of embodied Joshua. Joshua, uh, the book of Joshua is right after the five books of Moses, and it's uh, the story of going into the promised land. And I think the whole journey of Israel is a, there's a lot of parallels to our journey. You know, you go through the, uh, the, the walk through the Old Testament, right? You know, uh, God raised up a leader named Moses, let my, said, let my people go. And God took Israel out of Egypt. He delivered them. That's, in a sense, like our salvation. Israel didn't get themselves out of Egypt, right? God did all these miracles, and he did the ten plagues and all that, and he just said, let's just go. The Israelites didn't come up with a plan. They didn't fight off the Egyptians. They just went. God did it all. He 
he gave them birth as a nation. And so he brought them into the, to the kind of waiting area out in the desert. And uh, then he said, I'm going to give you a promised land. And I think the promised land corresponds to our Christian life. So, uh, so what happens is, as they come out, he says, I'm going to send 12 spies into the promised land, and you're going to check it out, and you're going to come back, but I'm going to give it to you. You're going to have to put in some effort. You notice the parallel? No real effort to get out of Egypt except to walk out. God did that. But when they go in the promised land, he says, now we're partners. I'm going to do it, but you're going to have to participate. Like, if you think about it, the first place they went, you know, Jericho, it's a weird, you know, they walk around, they blow the trumpets. They're not really fighting, but the walls fall down. So the point is, you've got to put in some effort, but God's going to do it. So, back to the spies. The spies go in, one from each tribe, 12 guys, and one of them from Judah is named Caleb. And then there's Joshua. So they go into the land for 40 days. They look at the land of Israel, same place we're going to be going in a couple months with a bunch of you. And um, they scout it out, and they say, this place is awesome. And they come back, and Joshua and Caleb are all excited because they believe God's going to give them the land. And they get there, and the 10 other guys, they have a big meeting with Israel, and all the Israelite leaders and everybody, and the 10 guys say, yeah, it's a real nice land, but gosh, there's these like giants there, and they're going to kill us, and we look like grasshoppers in their sight, and in our own sight, and I don't think we can do it, and everybody just started to weep. And their hearts melted with fear, and they're like, oh, no, what are we doing? We're out in the desert. We've left Egypt. We can't go to the promised land. And they're all upset. And the two guys, Joshua and Caleb, say, what are you talking about? Yeah, there's some people there. Yeah, some of them are pretty big. But God said that he would give us this land. So he can. We can do it. And there's this big, giant uh, uproar. And the ten convinced the entire nation we can't do it. And God says, okay. Guess what? I would, have, I would have fought for you. I would, have, I would have given you the land. But because you don't want to, you can just stay out here in the desert. And you'll stay out here for one year for every day those guys were there. So they stayed in the desert for 40 years. So they're out in the desert for 40 years. And, and Moses, God says to Moses, and then Mo, or Moses says, the only two of those guys that's going to make it through this whole desert experience are Joshua and Caleb, because Caleb followed me wholeheartedly. And that word wholeheartedly is used seven times of Caleb. It describes him. He's a wholehearted follower. And everybody else, he has to wait. He and Joshua have to spend the next 40 years wandering around the wilderness with all these people who didn't believe God, and that whole generation died off. And so finally, after 40 years, it comes time to take the land, and Joshua leads, and that's how the book of Joshua um, continues. So, so at age 40, Caleb is a spy. He makes this good report. He's out there for 40 years. Now he's 80, and they just start fighting. And they fight for five years, and basically there's a master conquest. They break the back of the enemy. They, they, they have all these giant victories throughout the land, but they haven't taken all the little bits and pieces. They've just had a general victory. And what... Um, 
what the Israelites decide to do is they go, that's, that's enough fighting for us. Five years, we kind of have the place in general. And yeah, we could chase these other people out, but we have a better idea than God. Why don't we just allow them to stay and they can pay taxes? Or it was called tribute back then. We said, this is even better. We'll make more money off them. God says, no, I'm, I'm giving you the land. Chase everyone out and it's yours. And they're like, eh, I don't know, that's a lot of work. That's a lot of effort. And so they settled, you know, in, in more ways than one. They settled the land, but they also just settled for kind of a partial conquest. And they said, you know, this is fine. We've got enough. We'll let those people hang around, influence in terrible ways. Um, but, but Caleb is not like that. He's 85 years old. <laughs> By the way, um, so I'm on Medicare now, and, uh, and you got Medicare. It's just a lovely system, and it still costs money. I thought it was free. No. You know, so you got the monthly payments, and then you got the supplemental because you got to do that. You know, you can't just have, like, the regular Medicare. And then you got to have the drug plan. And so, uh, so we're dealing with this, and Darlene's not quite there yet. She'd want to make that point real clear. And so, but she's, she's coming close to it. And they have this thing that I thought, is there a more condescending way to say this? I don't know. Have you ever heard of silver sneakers? The silver, some of you are like, yeah. And I'm like, what? Uh, silver sneakers program is for old people to join health clubs. And, uh, and silver sneakers is the way that we do it. And so I've been paying for this health club. And finally, somebody said, you know that you can just, you can go for there for free because you're so old. And I said, I didn't know that. So I walked up, I said, uh, and people always call me sir now, and I thought it was respect, but it's not. It's just, you're old. And, um, and I said, can I do the silver sneakers? They said, yes. I said, can I join as many clubs as I want? They said, yes. They probably think, because you're never going to go. And, uh, and do I have to pay any more? No. So anyway, Caleb's kind of got the silver sneakers going on, right? He's 85 years old. And in chapter 13 of Joshua, here's what God says. When Joshua was an old man, the Lord said to him, I love this, you're an old man. And Joshua's probably going, thanks a lot. I, I know. I look in the mirror every day and I'm old. And so the Lord says, Joshua, you're growing old and much land remains to be conquered. Now, this is the territory that remains. And then there's one of those lists that makes you stop reading the Bible because it's just so complicated. But it's, it's meaningful because he says, okay, you've, you've got most of the land in big chunks, but now you've got to go take in, in individual parts of it. All these cities, God's going to give all of it to you. And you've got to divide it up among, among all the 12 tribes, and then they're going to go do it, right? And a lot of the people are like, no, we're not. We're just going to settle. We're fine. We're retired even though they're young. But the old guy, Caleb, who's 85, here's what he says. So we go to chapter 14, verse 6, where Caleb shows up. And here's they're going to give the allotment to, jo to uh, Judah. And Caleb says, Joshua, remember what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, about you and me when we were at Kadesh Barnea, when we were spies. Remember, 45 years ago, I was 40 years old then when Moses sent me to explore the land. I returned and gave an honest report, but my brothers who went with me frightened the people from entering the promised land. Next. 
For my part, I wholeheartedly followed the Lord my God. So that day, Moses solemnly promised me the land of Canaan on which you were just walking, specifically the town of Hebron, because that's what Caleb really liked when he saw it. You were just walking will be your land and that of your descendants forever because you wholeheartedly, there's that word again, follow the Lord my God. Now, as you can see, imagine this old guy crops up and he's got his hand raised. He's very excited. He's been waiting 45 years for this. He says, now as you can see, should be the next one, uh, the Lord has kept me alive and well, as he promised for all these 45 years since Moses made this promise, even while Israel wandered in the wilderness. Today I'm 85. I've got my silver sneakers card. I'm as strong now as I was when Moses sent me on that journey, and I can still travel and fight as well as I could. So give me the hill country that the Lord promised me. You'll remember that as scouts we found the descendants of Anak living there in great walled towns. But if the Lord is with me, I'll drive them out of the land just as the Lord said. So Joshua blessed Caleb and gave Hebron to him as his portion of land. And this is why people name their kids Caleb. It's an honorable name. And in, in chapter 15, verse 14, it says, Caleb drove out the three groups of Anakites, the sons of Anak. That nobody thought that he could, especially at 85 years old. So you've got all these people that are kind of giving in and, just, and, and living lives where they don't have to ask God for help. And Caleb stands up and says, I'm going to do the thing you don't think I can do and you don't want to do, and it's going to require me to ask God for help, but I'm going to do it. And he stands out in contrast to the whole culture, to the whole society that he's in, because he's growing and changing while they are sitting on the sidelines. And here's what I loved when I wrote, when I read what Francis Schaeffer said about this back when 19 whatever, when I met him, he said this, back in Joshua's day, when the master conquest was over, God was the same, his promise was the same, his power was the same, but the people did not possess their possessions because of their desire for peace and for tribute. We Christians stand in the same danger. It's all too easy to fail to possess the possessions God has promised because we either draw back out of fear of the trouble that being a Christian will bring us or we become caught up in the affluent society where people sail their little boats upon this plastic culture. I remember reading that and going, whoa, that sounds like a prophet, doesn't it? Let me read this one again. It's all too easy to fail to possess the possessions God's promised because we either draw back out of the fear of the trouble that being a Christian will bring us or we become caught up in the affluent society where people sail their little boats upon this plastic culture. There's all these ways we can spend our time and energy and, and God's saying, why don't you just take what I'm giving you? It's going to require a little effort, and it's going to require you putting yourself in a place where you have to ask me for help, but that's how you grow. So let me just um, finish by saying this and give some examples. I don't like this. I think it's true, but I don't like it. I don't want to put myself in a place where I have to ask God for help because that means, you know, I might not be comfortable. I might feel awkward. I might not know what I'm doing. Like this marketplace chaplain thing that I just, you know, started doing. 
it's a wonderful organization, but what you do is you drive up and you go to this dermatology clinic and I walk in and half these people, they're very busy. The doctors are like, hey, Steve, you know, I mean, they know why I'm there, but they don't have time to talk really. And then these other people with their computers and sometimes I feel like I'm just interrupting and I just feel awkward and stupid. And I'm like, I kind of appreciate this, but it's weird. And I drive up, and I drove up the other day, and I'm getting ready to get out, and I'm, I'm in my head, I'm already kind of defeated. I'm like, this is not going to work. What am I? It's stupid. It's, I feel so foolish. Like, I appreciate it, but they don't really need me there. They don't really want me there. And I stopped, and I just said, God, <laughs> I haven't done this before. I need your help if this is going to work at all. So I forced myself to stay in the car and just ask God for help. And I walked in, and it was like, it was so obvious. I walk in, and somebody who had had a closed door before opens the door and says, hey, come in and sit down. Let's talk. I'm like, okay, fine. And we talked for a while, and they needed some prayer, so we prayed. And then I, I walk over, and this woman, you know, I'm about to walk past her. Her name is Elizabeth. And, and she goes by, and then she kind of lowers her voice, and she said, my, my uh, son's never grieved the death of his dad what, what, what can I do and so we sat and we talked and I got back in the car a little bit later and I was like well that was fairly obvious I just said God I need your help we were we uh, were table leaders for a, a class at our, the church we go to in Colorado and uh, it was the first week was last week and I'm just like I don't what am I doing I haven't done this before. I don't know the class that well. I've got, you know, I don't know if these people are going to like me. And you're going, Steve, you're so insecure. And I just, yeah, I guess I am. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't know. I don't know if I'm needed here. I don't know what to say. And I just, I'm talking to the guy next to me. I goes, oh, how was your day? He goes, well, uh, this afternoon, my wife gave me divorce papers. And I'm like, and you still came here. And so, uh, you know, our class goes on, and I'm just saying, God, how do I help me? I don't know what to say to this guy. You know, it's so delicate. It's so fragile. What can you say to a person who's just told you that? You know, and then we ended up, I just asked if he wanted to pray. So we went in another room, we prayed, and I walked out going, huh, maybe God can use me. And I, I really need to ask for help. I have this friend named Rick, and we have breakfast every week. And we used to know each other in seminary in the early 70s, and we haven't seen each other since then until now because he and his wife now live in Colorado Springs. So we get together every week, and he's between jobs. And while he's between jobs, he works at Chick-fil-A, and he drives Uber. This guy's been a great pastor and done all these things and uh, traveled all over, and he goes, you know what? I really need to check my attitude every day. He says, it's amazing. When I, when I ask God for help and I'm driving Uber, it seems like everybody that gets in my car, there's a purpose to it. He said, but I have to be careful because otherwise, if I don't like bring God into the situation, I, it's just like they're, they're kind of a, it's just a job or, or an irritation. He says, I work at, work at Chick-fil-A. If I don't ask God for help, then I just get mad at people who make a mess at their table, and I'm just sitting there going, what am I doing? Someone said, uh, when Michael Jordan was near the end of his career, remember Michael Jordan, basketball player? Yeah, great guy. Um, somebody said, Michael Jordan's living the American dream. And the American dream is he doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to do. And he gets to do 
everything he wants to do. That's the American dream. And you could, you could say, and doesn't need any help and especially doesn't need God's help. So what I'm saying is counterintuitive, right? The whole idea of putting ourselves in a place where we have to ask God for help, it's counterintuitive to everything we really want. We really want security. We want everything to be taken care of. We want to control life. But I think God says, I mean, he doesn't, it's not even like he's saying make stupid decisions or whatever, but he's saying, put yourself in a place where you need to ask God for help. That's how you grow. And you guys are in church. I don't know if you're aware of that, but what I've seen in church is people will get in church and they get in ministries and they get involved and they find their sweet spot, right? And it's great. You're working with the kids or you're working in a small group or you're doing some kind of leadership or whatever. And that has a lifespan. And, and, and what I've seen over and over in churches is people go for, and they're involved in a ministry for a while, whether it's music or whatever, and it's, it's wonderful for a while, but then some people leave, some people come, and they're out of the spotlight, and it's like, oh, no, I, it's not the way it used to be, and I'm not in the spotlight anymore, and it's, it's, um, it's not the way it used to be, and I don't know, maybe I should just quit. It happens all the time. And what I would say to myself and to you is we have to reinvent ourselves in the sense of when that happens to you, you have to stop and go, I have to start all over sometimes. And I've got to go to the elders or I've got to go to a staff person and go, I used to do this, that the season for that is over. What needs are there now? And you might have to do something that puts you in a place where you have to ask God for help. And it's going to feel awkward and foolish, and you might not feel like you fit in the beginning, but maybe that's where God wants you. Because guess what? You'll grow. You'll change. You'll use your gifts. And that's how sanctification happens. Let's pray. Jesus, give us courage. We thank you for the story of Caleb and how he didn't allow the pull of his culture to take him down. He still saw you, even when he didn't have a lot of friends um, encouraging him. So we thank you for his example of continuing to put himself in a place where he needed your help. For us, we know we need your help all the time. Help us to have the courage to put ourselves in a place where maybe it's not that comfortable, but it's a good place and we're needed and we're going to grow and change because we will feel that sensation again of being out of our element and yet knowing that your spirit is there and that you're going to change us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.